Have you ever been confused for the I kiss dating goodbye guy? The path from working with IT to now leading the teaching team? Have you ever taken Hebrew just for fun? The pros of having an English lit degree when you're a teaching pastor? And how do you work at a church where building it while we're flying it is part of the DNA? In this episode, we have a conversation with Josh Harrison, the teaching pastor at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Teaching Pastor Podcast. Uh, we are here in one of the hippest rooms I've sat in. Oh, yeah? It's pretty hip. Right. I mean, this is like retro 60s, 70s yeah. furniture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to say it's the most uncomfortable furniture. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, but everybody loves it. And I am here with Josh Harrison, who's the teaching pastor at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa. Good to be with you, Craig. Yeah, how are you doing, Josh? Oh, I'm good, man. I'm doing really well. I'm excited about this conversation today. It's stuff that I really, really care about a lot. So it'll be fun to, to have a conversation and um, see where it all goes. Awesome, awesome. Okay, first question. Yeah. Um, so Joshua Harrison, yes. do you ever get like mixed up with Josh Harris? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, Seriously? The, the I Kiss Dating Goodbye I kiss guy? I Dating Goodbye, uh-huh. yeah. And well, and he's been back in the news recently, you yes, know, kind he's on of like an apology to kind him. of recanting his book. Yeah, <laughs> no, I get that one a lot. And then I, I there's apparently I mean, I'm a kind of a baseball guy, but not a Pittsburgh guy. There's a guy on the Pittsburgh uh, Pirates named Josh Harrison. Yes. Yeah. And once uh, once people see me, they know that they I'm not know that because guy. Josh Harrison is African-American, he is African-American and, and, um, and athletic. And you're a white guy. <laughs> exactly. So but no, I did. I did get that all the time. I did get the I kissed dating goodbye thing all the time. Yeah. It, do people like come up and just say like you ruined my life or, or are people <laughs> no, like no, no. thanking you? Yeah. N- neither one. Neither one. Mostly just laughing at me. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Yep. All right. So you are the teaching pastor here at Rock Harbor like yep. that. So how did you, how did that happen? Like oh, you were, man. you started in like IT here or something like oh, that. Oh, Craig, that's a, that's a long story. So yeah, I, um. I'll do it quick. I, I, I was at Vanguard University as the missions director over there for, for several years. It was kind of my first job in vocational ministry. And when I landed in that, I thought uh, this is, you know, vocational ministry is what I was made for, what I want to be doing. I got a lot of chances to teach over there. Loved that part of it. Um, did a, did, did a grad school while I was there, you know, kind of banking on the free tuition at the time, uh-huh. which was great in biblical studies. And I loved all that. So it was all kind of preparing me for what I thought was a life in vocational ministry. And then uh, when it was time to leave Vanguard, uh, you know, all in all, I'd been there for, for a whole bunch of years. And uh, so I thought, okay, you know, it's time to, time to step into a church. And I started looking around and um, just nothing. Like, you know, I, I put out applications. I, I, I tried to network. I'm a terrible networker, but I eventually <laughs> ended up in this place of like, yeah, I'm not getting anything back, you know. And I applied. Uh, this was shortly after um, one of the, ma- the, the primary teaching pastor at this church, Mike Erie, had had moved on. Um, and so his job was open on the website. I applied for it and got this very nice email back saying, you know, you're really not qualified for this. And it was true. It is true. Um, and uh, But a friend of mine was working here at the time at Rock Harbor and, and went and said, hey, I know it's kind of random, but you did IT back in the day at Vanguard before you were the missions director. Um, and our IT guy just left. I know you want to step into ministry, but just throwing it out there. And I thought, hmm, okay, um, I guess, so, you know, I'll check it out. So I went and applied for the IT job and, and got it and um, then spent the next year and a half really doing IT work. And what was nice about it, it, it wasn't a passion. It wasn't a calling, but it was a, it was a job that I could um, 
that left me enough headspace to think about other stuff mm. and to serve in other areas. So I just started volunteering at the church, a whole bunch of different areas, you know, whether it was writing curriculum for life groups or helping teach a course that was being launched. And, you know, one thing led to another. And pretty soon a um, couple of our, our teaching pastors left within a few weeks of each other, you know, dead, nothing, nothing negative, just other opportunities came up and um, they were looking for somebody to, to teach. And one of the guys here at the, at the campus said, Hey, I've, you know, I've heard Josh do a couple of classes. Maybe you should check it out. So um, our lead pastor at the time, behind the scenes, he didn't tell me any of this, but he arranged to have me speak at one of the campuses. My first sermon at Rock Harbor, this is about five years ago now. And uh, so I showed up there. There were two services, at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. I showed up to the 9 o'clock and preached it and thought it went pretty well. And then I, I stand up to preach the 11 o'clock, and our lead pastor and both of the chairs of the elder board were sitting there in the middle of the room. And <laughs> so they had gone, they, they had texted out, all right, yeah. get down here. Yeah. And so it was one of those, like, I guess this is a job interview. And sure enough, you know, I preached on Sunday. On Friday, the lead pastor calls me into the office and said, hey, you know, if you're not too attached to the IT gig, we'd like to consider having you step into more teaching stuff here, which um, for him had some very specific meanings attached, one of which is helping to lead the teaching team that we have here yeah. of all of our campus teachers um, and then preach. Uh, at the time, it was sort of preach as needed wherever, yeah. and it's more focused over the last um, several years to preaching specifically at Costa Mesa. Okay. So, yeah. Long journey, lots of details I've left out, but that's the gist. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> I remember, I remember talking to Todd at the time yeah, yeah. and, um, he was, he was saying, yeah, we got this guy in it and yeah. he, he's got, he has skills that we didn't know he had. Yeah. Well, and I, I was talking to Todd just the other day and I, I just thanked him. I said, you know, you probably shouldn't have done that. That was probably a, like a dumb risk you took on me, but I'm really grateful that you did. That's really cool, though. <laughs> These are great. I mean, it's great, it's great stories then when you think about what is my next step and how, well, look, God has God has it. Yeah. God's got it down. Yep. And that's, um, so, you know, if people out there, they're wondering, what is next and how am I going to get there? Yeah. Like, well, look, find good, meaningful work like yep. IT. Yep. And keep using your gifts. Yeah. And be faithful with what God puts in front of you, yeah. you know? So yeah. good. Yeah. So what kind of training, so where, where did you get some seminary training? Uh, how did you do that? Yeah. So no official seminary. Um, my undergrad is in English literature. Um, I worked at Vanguard for a while doing IT work after I graduated with my undergrad and, um, uh, took me a few years to catch on to the fact that I had free tuition at Vanguard and I should probably do something with that, you know? So I, uh, I just on a whim enrolled in a Hebrew class just for fun. It sounded like fun. And uh, class went really well. I loved it. And it was sort of unfair because here I am, you know, at 25 in a class with a bunch of undergrads. They're all taking 18 to 21 units. I'm taking three, you know. This is it. Yeah. And so I'm able to dedicate all my time and energy to it. And so I did really well. And a professor comes up to me afterwards after the semester and just said, hey, why don't you turn this into a master's degree? And I said, I'm not a. Bible guy. I mean, I've been a Christian my whole life, but I'm not a biblical studies guy. I'm an English guy. And he goes, even better. He goes, I'll take an English guy. And no, no offense to anybody who's got a religion degree, but my professor at the time said, I'll take an English guy over a religion guy anytime because <laughs> because you guys know how to read is what he said. You uh, know? Wow. And what he was talking about was literary theory and yeah. characterization develop, you know, and plot development, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And he goes, the Bible will make a lot of sense to you in ways that might not to other people. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's cool. So he talked me into it. And plus, he just said, you really like languages, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, just do your master's degree in languages then. So they had a, they had this degree at the time in biblical studies that was like kind of a choose your own adventure. It was essentially, you know, 50 units of electives and then three core classes. 
So I took, I took the three core classes, which were Old Testament, New Testament, and, and like a missiology class. And then I took three years of Hebrew, three years of Greek, and a year of Aramaic and Syriac, and that was my degree. So, which I never finished, by the way. I reached out to him the other day and said, hey, what would it take to finish? This was 10 years ago, and so I'm, I'm in that conversation now. But the reason I didn't finish is I, in the middle of it, same professor recommended me to a course in England. So my wife and I, before we adopted our girls, um, we moved to England for a year, and I did a, a master's, they call it a master of studies in Jewish studies at Oxford. Okay. So that was my, that's my official grad degree. Again, not a seminary degree, not even a Christian degree. Okay. It was actually um, most of, I, some of my profs that I had were Christian, most were Jewish, some were atheist, um, all approaching the Bible. It was fascinating because it was an Old Testament degree, but not from a Christian perspective. Yeah, Which that sounds great. like a great, that actually sounds like a great seminary experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. How do you, so how do you feel like that helped you like that? What did that prepare you for and what didn't it prepare you oh, for? Oh man, yeah. Well, what I didn't have, I'll start with the, the negative. That's, that's probably <laughs> tells you about my personality, doesn't it? Um, no, I, uh, what I didn't have was any of the pastoral care conversation. So I think I was gaining um, an understanding of what it meant to be a teacher to be a student, to be an, an intellectual, you know, which all of which is important part of the teaching process. But I never sat down in a class and said, how do you counsel somebody whose, you know, marriage is falling apart? Or how do you, you know, what does it mean to have empathy or to be a good listener? You know, all these things, which um, we can get to that in a bit. But um, that was that was a lot of the stuff that wasn't prepared. What was kind of was prepared in me um, was just some of the basic academic tools. Um, how do you go about exegeting a passage well? Um, how do you bring your kind of English background to bear on a text, um, on a conversation? Um, yeah, um, what role do languages play? Should they play in, the, in, in preaching and teaching? Um, and then the Jewish study stuff was invaluable. I mean, oh, yeah. Jesus is a Jew. You know? Turns out. Yeah, right. And everybody who follows him is Jewish, too. Exactly. I tell my class, I'm like, this is Jewish literature yes. from the first century. Yeah. This is not Christian literature. Nope. This is Jewish literature. No. Nope. Yeah, I had this fascinating conversation. I was in, um, I was in Israel. We we're driving past Cana of Galilee, you know, with uh, our, our, our tour guide. It was a Greek Orthodox, Palestinian Greek Orthodox man. He's giving us this tour, and he says, you know, it's thick accent. He's talking about the wedding at Cana of Galilee and the turning of the water to wine is about Jesus starting a new religion, breaking with Judaism and starting Christianity. And I just, I'm sitting in the back of the bus, like seething. I was like, no, 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 no. He was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. None of them thought they were starting a new religion. You know, Not so, at all. Not at all. So all of that to say the Jewish studies degree was invaluable just to be, you know, to kind of ground yourself in and Talmud and what first century rabbinic thought was all about and and which is notoriously difficult to get to yeah oh yeah but it, at the same time recovering that Jewishness mm -hmm. of those texts is awesome all right so yeah, this so is that's the background yeah this is I mean we're gonna get to we're gonna get to the geek mode in just a second sure. but, um, but Rock Harbor is a, a pretty like complicated organization yes you got four camp five campuses essentially yes but four local campuses uh -huh. Um, and a teaching team yep. um, where everybody, you've got your, you've got live teachers at every campus, yeah. but you're kind of in the same thing. Like, tell us about how does it, what is the secret sauce here at oh, Rock man. Harbor? Like how, how does teamwork? And then um, eventually what's your role in that? But let's just talk about how yeah. does the team concept work here at a multi-site campus? Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll just confess right off the bat that it's a, it's a, it's a very much a process in flux. You know, we, we have been 
adjusting and tweaking over the years. And I think originally the teaching team concept here, well, I'll back up a little bit before that even and say something that was very apparent early on was that Rock Harbor, our people have no interest. And again, no offense to any churches that are doing this, but our people have no interest in video teaching. Right. They just don't. We tried it. I mean, you know, Mike Erie, who was here before, a fantastic teacher. And so it made all the sense in the world to just put them on in front of a camera and then send it out to the campuses and they just wouldn't have it. Um, so very early on. It Why was, not? You tell me, talk, talk a little bit about it. You know, it. I wasn't here for it. So I'll, it's, it's more hearsay. But what's it was, your, yeah, what's your it, guess? What's it, your was, gut? it was just a sense of, of the kind of personal and pastoral connection, I think. It was like, yes, this is great content, but we're at church for more than content. We're at church for... Uh, an environment that is created by uh, both by the community that's around us, but also by the people who are leading us. And and as good as this guy on the screen is, I don't know him. <laughs> you know, he's not in front of me. I can't go up to him afterwards and ask him, what did you mean? Or tell him, I think you're wrong. Or tell him how much what he said touched me, you know, mm. like, so I, I think that was it. I mm. think that was it. I mean, I think there's there's probably some of it's just an awkward thing to sit in a room with a couple hundred people and stare at a wall. You know, you know, um, there's probably some of that, but I think more than that, it was the community connection. Right. So how do you, so then, you, so the idea then was let's have live teachers at every campus, yeah. but let's have them preach essentially the same yeah. thing. So that's where it started. Yeah. So it was live teaching at every campus, but teaching the same text. And initially the, the first iteration of it was fairly, um, fairly unified. So what I mean by that is we have this amazing teacher in Mike who would, from my understanding, would come in with an outline and say, here's what we're going to preach and would sort of slide it across the table to the teachers at the other campuses and say, uh, and maybe this is crass. And if, Mike, if you hear this and I'm wrong, please correct me, but essentially say, um, insert life story here and here, you know, and then t teach the text. <laughs> don't, mm -hmm. don't, don't screw up the outline. Um, and then I think it just evolved over time. I think part of it, part of it was um, learning that as great as Mike was, we also had other competent teachers who were thinkers in their own right and could develop their own outlines. I think, you know, when Mike moved on, there wasn't anybody who had initially, at least, um, that kind of a voice. There were some that grew into it. Um, one that you were just telling me you heard from Darren McWaters, you know, came in and, and began to grow into his voice as well. But I think it was one of those things that like when when the big teacher leaves, it, de it decentralizes the whole thing. Right. And so there was a movement away from this extreme, we'll call it unity, um, to more of a, of a diverse approach to teaching where each person is really prepping their own sermon uh, on the same text or the same topic. So at that point, um, and this is what I stepped into, the process is now led by one person who comes and brings um, research and thoughts and, you know, an overview or an outline that, hey, if I had to preach it right now, here's what I would do. Yeah. And then the team wrestles with it. And what's your role in that? So that's my role. So my role is... Um, we, t we meet on a, a Tuesday morning at eight o'clock. My role is um, the week before I'm, I'm thinking, I'm praying, I'm, I'm studying, I'm putting together. What, I, I, what I've, I've stopped putting together outlines and instead I put together an overview, which for me is basically a very condensed, say two or three page commentary on, on what we're studying. So it's, like I said, it's my version. If I, if I had to teach it right now, here's what I would do. And I bring it in on Tuesday mornings. And for the most part, um, that Tuesday morning, which is about three weeks ahead of the Sunday we'd be preaching in. So it's not, we've, we've gotten ahead um, of, the, of the curve a little bit. Um, I'll bring that in and, and basically that'll be the first time that anybody else in the room beside myself has thought about it or really, so that's their kind of first introduction. 
Um, and what we'll, what we'll tend to do is I don't give them the, the overview right away. Instead, I um, read the text, we'll read the text together, and then I just ask the very simple question, what do you see? And we let the conversation go as long as it goes. Because, uh, and this is Todd's, uh, Todd's genius, um, he was basically noticing that, hey, when you bring your overview first, that shapes the conversation yeah, as opposed to in yeah. one direction. Yeah, and I, actually, I think that might have been your feedback. I think you might have given that feedback huh. to Todd back in the day, and huh. then he brought it because he said he had coffee with you. Anyway, anyway, so you shaped our process, Craig. Um, but, <laughs> Unintentionally. Yeah, no, it was great. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. But yeah, so it skewed the process. So we, I basically let them wrestle with the text for themselves now um, for a while, and then when it feels like the conversation begins to wane a little bit, I'll say, okay, well, here's some thoughts that I had. And a lot of times the thoughts that I've had have, have come up organically in the conversation. Right. Um, and then, yeah, uh, from there, everybody takes their, takes their, um, the stuff and, and does what they want. So they do their own study, they're writing their own sermon, um, and then they preach it. And if you were to go hear it at the campuses, you'd hear five different sermons. Mm. Um, there are conversations we're constantly in now of, is that okay? What, 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 what degree of difference is okay? If Rock Harbor is known for a style or a theological position, how much autonomy can we have, you know? Yeah. And we're constantly wrestling with that. So now we're having conversations of saying, do we need to be a little bit more tight? Do we need to all land in the same place? Yeah. Or all have the same main point or, you know. This so. sounds like, it's so interesting because the, it's almost like that's, that's the ecclesiological issue of having a multi-site campus yes. is how much unity, how much diversity, yeah. how much autonomy do these multi-sites have? Yep. Is there equality? Is there one mothership right. where there's, you know, I always joke about the mother, the Rock Harbor mothership. Yes. But, you know, it's it's an ecclesiological question. Yes. Is what are you going to do with that? And, um, you know, there's a lot of multi-site churches out there that do you go with the, like a franchise model. Mm -hmm. Do you go like, do you have people stare at the wall? Yep. What, what exactly is going on? Yep. But it sounds like in their teaching team, like that is the sharp point of the stick where you're mm -hmm. talking about essentially what are the ecclesiological issues. Right where we come at this. And it, co it comes around, what are, we, what are we preaching? What are we talking about from the word yep. to our people? So you're at least on the same passage. Yes, same passage, same topic. Uh, when we get topical, it gets a little bit messier. Because um, a lot of times, yeah, I mean, as it does, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, it's, it's funny because it is like, I mean, I love, I love Rock Harbor. I love how innovative it is. But it is, it is the quintessential, we are building it while we're flying. Oh, it. yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, and it's been like that forever, it yep. feels like. Yep. It feels like we wouldn't know how to do it any other way. I mean, sometimes, but yeah, when when it's so, we just did a long series, a, a year long series on the Book of Luke, and that I was know I, I have questions about that. Oh, cool. Yeah, but go ahead, keep we'll going. Talk about yeah. It, yeah, and it was cool because you you know, hey, what are we going to be talking about in teaching team tomorrow? Luke eighteen. You know, what about next week? Luke nineteen. You know, so it was it was very easy. But when it comes to topical, you know, I'll I'll bring in a an idea of hey, our topic, uh, you know, our topic is going to be like for instance this weekend, our topic is politics having a conversation about politics and, the, and a Christian, a church's role in the political world. So, well, there's a billion ways to preach that. Right. So I'll bring in a passage. Right. And sometimes people say, I don't want to preach that passage. Like I've got a better way of, you know, in the most respectful way possible. And so we wrestle with, sometimes we'll walk out of the room and say, we'll do it your way. It, it, you know, like that sounds like it's what your community needs. So I want to say for the most part, we're preaching the same passage. And yeah, maybe if I were a little bit more <laughs> of a, strong or heavy-handed leader, I would, I, would, I would make it an all-the-time thing. But sometimes I, I just feel like 
the people in the room know their community better than I do. And yeah. they've got a better way of teaching it than I would. Yeah, no doubt. I so. could see how if you're going on, like in Luke, you're like, well, this is our passage. Yeah. But if you're topical, like you said, you got six six guys in the room, six yeah. people in the room that are going to teach this and they could all do a great job. Yes. And they're all very competent. Yes. And so that's where the, the big question is, how, mm-hmm. what are we saying? And do we all need to say the same thing here? Yep. That is a, that's a fascinating question. All right. Yeah. So that's. So that's how the team thing works. Yep. How far out? So you, you're about three weeks out. Yeah, from... and this this is newish. Okay. Uh, the idea. So we have a. I keep calling him our new lead pastor, but he's been here about a year and a half now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's coming in from a church that was also multi-site in Minneapolis, and he, they were video venue. So so on the kind of, uh, you know, unity versus autonomy scale, they were extremely unified. Got it. Um, and he comes into Rock Harbor, and at the time he came in, we hadn't had a lead pastor for a while. So on the unity to autonomy scale, we were about as autonomous as you could get. And he's loosely held together by yes. duct tape and bailing wire. <laughs> and the fact that we all like each other, exactly. Um, and he, uh, so he's, he's coming in and saying, I don't want to make it what I left, but I also want to bring some level of balance here. And so he, he was the one that recommended the three-week-ahead thing to basically say, one, um, it seems fast if we're talking about it on a Tuesday and preaching it on a Sunday. Yep. It seems like we need a little bit more time. But two to say, can we use the meetings then a little bit more wisely to say, hey, week one, you introduce a topic. Week two, you revisit the topic now that the guys have had time to think about it. Week three, everybody brings their outline and you, you really flesh through the details of the outline. Now, we haven't gotten that down yet, but that's the theory. Got so, it. Got so we are in fact three weeks ahead. As of yet, I haven't gotten anybody to bring an outline <laughs> a week in advance, but um, but we're moving there. We're getting there. That's good. That's yep. good. Yeah. All right. So let's go back. So in your process, you're like you're the spies in the land. You go. You're the first mm-hmm. one into the passage. Yep. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about your own kind of secret sauce, like the kind of the human way. Oh sure. You do this. Like what? Um, a, where do you do your best work? Like, oh, where man. is that at? Is it in your office, coffee shop? Like, what's what's the best spot? Home? Yeah, definitely not home. <laughs> I mean, and even if it, even if it's just me there, you know, uh, it's definitely not home. I just I just get too comfortable and settle in and fall asleep, <laughs> you know. Or there's dishes in the sink. Or there's, or, yeah, exactly. Totally, and you gotta do yeah. Yeah, you know, for a long time, I would say I would have said it was a coffee shop kind of environment, but that's because, and we can get into this in a bit, but my process has changed significantly over the last several years from when I first started. Um, so it used to be that I would find a coffee shop, you know, away from work, away from hopefully one where no Rock Harbor people go so I wouldn't be in the conversation. And I would just literally sit there from eight in the morning to five in the afternoon and just bang out the manuscript. And this was after I had done the research. Um, from a research perspective, like a, a, a getting out of the gates perspective, I usually start in my office. Okay. Um, I share an office with other people though, so it can be difficult. Okay. Um, so Ear, earbuds, headphones? Sometimes, um, although I cannot listen to anything lyrical. Okay. So it has to be instrumental. I just, I get distracted. So yeah. I'm, I'm recommendations are always in order for a good instrumental stuff. I always find, um, although my, my son tells me that Pandora is so old, Dad. <laughs> but I had this, pa- I had a Phil Kagey Pandora station. Okay, okay. And it was like, for me, it was like, it was like my muse. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Might have to get that from you. Anyway, so, yeah. um, so, no, so earbuds, you're sharing an office. Like, what are you using? What are you looking at the text with? Are you using 
um, your Hebrew Masoretic text, Greek, oh, or are you using uh, software or anything like that? Yeah, so I use Logos here in the office. Um, I have the, the sort of starter pack, so not a whole lot of bells and whistles. Um, but yeah, I wish I wish I could do original stuff more than I do. I mean, the reality is life around a big church doesn't allow as much time for prep as I'd like. So when I first started preaching, and that's essentially all I was doing, um, and that's all I thought my job was, was preaching. I've changed the way I think about my job over the last few years. But um, yeah, I would sit in and I would translate the passage before I would before I'd preach it. And that was great. I mean, some nuggets you'd get that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. I'm not doing that anymore. Hmm. Uh, I'll pull out the, the, you know, the, the Hebrew if I need, if there's a word that's like, oh, that's a funny word. Or that's interesting how they translate it because I think I know what the word is behind it. And I don't know that it means that, you know. Right. So I'll do that with the Hebrew or the Greek from time to time, but I'm not translating the passages before. Are you looking there. at multiple translations or um, or just yeah. one? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we use we use NIV here on the weekend, so I usually read that just to hear what our people are going to hear. Um, sometimes I'll pull up, you know, what's what's the NLT done with this? What is, you know, ESV? What's Eugene done with it right. in the message? Um, but a lot of times I'll just go straight to the Hebrew and just say, oh, that's the word that's behind it. I know what that means. Yeah. You know? I'm, act- I'm actually amazed at just how comparing English translations can get you at those really yeah. juicy nuggets. Yeah. Even if you don't have original language training, right. you can see where there's something sexy in there. Oh, yeah. Just by uh, nobody can agree on how to translate this. Yeah. Something's there. And they're all bringing out some facet of it. I right. mean, that's the thing. I One thing I learned in grad school that was so beneficial is we get we have our favorite translations and with good reason, you know, we have these, there are things about different ones that are great, but my professor just said, look, all of these are done by brilliant people for the most part working in committee. So it's, it's fact checked, it's background checked. And so if your translation, you know, meets those criteria and reveals Jesus as Lord, like it's a good translation, yeah. you, you know? So yes, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you're, so you're doing, you're kind of, you're getting into that. Are you mm-hmm. using, like, what is your commentary? When do you bring commentaries in? Yeah. Or are you a commentary hater? No, no, no. Or, okay. I'm, I'm, I like them uh, just to a degree. I'm not, you know, I hear about the, the, your famous pastors who will have 12 or 14 on their desk that they're consulting. And I'm not that kind of a guy. I'm a max of three just because of the way I've, I've started to come to think about what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I love scholarship. I love commentary work, but I try not to get anything too heavily academic. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I will usually have, you know, Nikot or Nikent on the, on the, the, the new international commentary of Old Testament, New mm-hmm. Testament in front of me. And that's about as academic as I'll get. Okay. Just because, you know, I, which is a critical commentary. Right. It that's is a critical. A critical so yeah, I'll have that. Um, on the other end, I also try to avoid the commentaries that are basically just expanded Bible studies that are, are almost entirely devotional. I try to find a middle road of some sort of an exegetical commentary. There's not one series that I love more than yeah. others. It's more authors that I like. Yeah. You know. And that's what you have to do book by book. Exactly. Is find who you like. And um, yeah. I like the, like the NIV application. Uh-huh. Those are good. Um, yeah. And they try to straddle that fence a little bit. But there's definitely some where you're like, yeah. look, this is just kind of rephrasing the passage again. Right. Know? But um yeah, so yeah. you've got to find something with some meat on it. So I've got a variety. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll Tyndale will have some good ones from time to time, depending on the author. Um, N.T. Wright's stuff is his for everyone. I always recommend to people in our church. Mm-hmm. I don't really use much in my own prep. He's the new Protestant pope. Ex- exactly. You know, where C.S. Lewis no longer with us. Yes. So now N.T. Wright has taken his place. Yes. So his stuff is great. I, I don't it find is. it. I don't find it to be 
the most helpful for me in preaching, but for our people, if they want further study, it's, yeah. it's good stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I find that if I get more than three commentaries, it starts to really affect my own processing. Much like I, I talked about, if I bring my stuff to the teaching team too early, it skews right. their thinking. Right. The same happens to me yep. with commentaries. So yeah, I'm, I'm a believer, but not a, not a fanatic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So in the in the pro, so when do you then start to talk about outline manuscript? Yeah. Like at what point are you then moving into kind of the crafting of it? Obviously, you do the exegetical yeah. work, you draw all these observations out, but then you have to like make decisions. Yeah. So my process is is kind of like this uh, because I'm leading the teaching team. I start with before everybody else. I start with um, study and research. Uh, study and research for me, I start with the text only. So I read the text myself and then I just take notes, write questions, whatever. Then I'll go to the commentaries, kind of deal with some of that, get my thoughts straight, and then create a preliminary, the overview that I bring to teaching team. So at that point I've crafted, I think I know what the main idea I want to bring out is, here's some supporting facts, here's some transitions to get from thought to thought. Um, at that point, uh, you know, we're three weeks ahead of when I'm going to be preaching this. So what I'll do for the next two weeks essentially is just nothing in the office. And, and this is where my process has changed. Um, I will just uh, walk and pray and sit in bed at night with my phone on the nightstand so I can reach it if I need to take a note. And it's, it's just a very organic process of like uh, marinating, I suppose. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, that's become invaluable. When, when I was first starting out in teaching, I basically went straight from the creation of that overview into manuscripting my sermon with very little intervening process. In the manuscripting process, I would literally write it out essentially word for word and then spend hours trying to memorize it um, to the best of my ability. And when I preached it on a Sunday, if you had the manuscript in front of you, you would see 95% correspondence. Um, well, just the sheer rigors of the job have, I don't have that kind of time anymore. And so what's happened is I've, I've created a gap between the overview and me writing my sermon. And in those two-ish weeks, I just pray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I try to spend as much time listening to what the Holy Spirit might be saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, for each sermon, there's a growing note in my iPhone that just grows and grows and grows with thoughts that may or may not ever make it into the sermon. Um, and they usually, I, I usually have three places they hit me. Two are okay. One is not good at all. The, you know, one is in the bathroom, you know, shower, toilet, whatever right. it may be. One is in bed at night, you know, when your mind is sort of the stillest. And then one's in the car. And that's the one that's dangerous because it's like, oh, I got to pull over and write this down really yeah. fast, right. you know. Right. But it's those, all those places where there's actually space. That's when quiet. you like yell up to God, can't you see I'm driving? Exactly. Exactly. But those are, you know, those are the places of sanity, the places of quiet. Right. So I don't even listen to music in my car anymore or even really podcast because it's just like, it's just thinking time. Mm. Um, and that note just grows and grows and grows. And then when it comes time to actually write the sermon, um, it's basically already written in my head because I've spent so much time marinating in it that it's just a matter of writing it down. And I don't manuscript anymore. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead with a question, but I just write a long outline. It's not just a skeletal outline. Yeah. It's three or four pages. But it's a uh, yeah. But I, I really bang out the writing process now in about two hours. Yeah. It's so. funny the um, when they. <sighs> I was teaching a, um, a class we were in this book, How to Think Theologically, um, hmm. Stone and Duke. And anyway, one of the things they talk about is there's two ways of processing information. To You do it sequentially, like yep. thought after thought after thought. And then they talk about thinking 
they called it parallel synthetic. Okay. And it was like thinking more in columns than it was thinking. Yeah. And they were saying like when you're sitting down at a text and you're just, you're looking at observations and one leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, that's this kind of sequential. Yep. But sometimes you have to like let it all kind of hang and then let it all fall at yes. the same time. And it usually happens while you're like doing dishes or yep. in the shower or yep. you're doing something else or you're doing something that is kind of mind, you're doing something, but it allows these thoughts to kind of land. Yes. Um, and they're never opportune times because you're never in the right spot. Right. But it is this interesting thing about allowing space. Hmm. Um, and I had never really thought about it's actually a way of thinking. Yeah. Of allowing this kind of parallel synthetic all at the same time to synthesize. Yep. Um, That's really cool. But to find some kind of like whether it's mowing the lawn, yeah. doing dishes, um, giving the kids a bath. I remember when the kids were young, like sometimes great sermon, I, I'd be, we'd be yeah. in a bath and I'd be giving them a bath and I'm like, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. There, there it is. I need a piece of paper. I, <laughs> <laughs> let's write it in suds on the wall yeah, or exactly, something like that. Exactly. No, but that's, so that is a, so what are some of the things, so you, are there any activities that you're doing that kind of stoke that process? No, not really. Like I said, driving is one for me, mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't actually have much of a commute. I live and work in the city, so it, I don't have a ton of time in the car, but driving is one. A lot of times laying in bed at night, my wife will laugh at me because I'll put my phone to bed for the night, and then, oh, shoot, I got to think, you know, roll over, grab it, take down a note, because I've realized if I, if I wait till the next morning, it's gone. Right. So, you, you know, I'll, there'll be, I'll put my phone down, roll over, type a note, lay back down, roll over, type a note 10 times in one night. And she's, why don't you just get up and write? She'll tell you, you know, just, just get up and get your laptop and write <laughs> the, the sermon. The tortured teaching yeah. pastor. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. But so those kind of places, just places of quiet for me. There's not one activity, you know, occasionally I'll go for a walk. Yeah. If I, if I find myself at an impasse, yeah. Um, sitting at my desk is the worst place when, you know, for writer's block, it's just, right. I, you just stew. And so I'll just find that when I, when I, it takes me a while to realize that I'm stuck. Right. But once I realize I'll push away and go for a walk and usually, um, somewhere along the walk, it'll hit me. And yeah. I'll pull out my phone, take a quick note, and right. run back to the laptop as fast as I can. You know? <laughs> so, so, okay, so you have come from, I mean, you've stepped into a into a pulpit yep. um, where there have been some pretty strong voices. Yeah. Um, for yourself, when do you feel like, or where do you feel like, at what point did you feel like you found your own voice? Oh, man, I think I'm still in process. Yeah. It, I think... If you had asked me when I was first starting out, say five years ago, I would tell you, oh, no, I feel comfortable with my voice, <laughs> which would have been naive. Um, because at the time, you know, you're right. I was stepping into a place that had some very strong and extremely talented voices and, and expectations that went along with those voices. And lots of people who were kind enough not to say to me, oh, you're not my Curie. But I knew they were thinking it. A couple of them said it to me. Church, church surveys. Church is, are, church is awesome well, for that. Well, right? and, and surveys are the worst. You know, I made the mistake of reading our survey one year and it set me back about six months in my emotional development. Yeah. But, uh, but um, <laughs> I stopped reading course evaluations. Oh, yeah. Like the first couple of years, I was like, oh, course evaluations. Now it's like I just put it, drag it right into a folder exactly. and I never see it. Exactly. Sorry, students. If any students are listening, <laughs> I, I, I very much prayerfully read over that. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. I put it all away. Yep. So... Um, just recently, honestly, I think I've really, I've really settled into what I think, and this is another podcast for another day, but what I think God has called me to, to do and, and be, and, and I mean, there are lots of moments along the way that have led to that. Uh, one thing that I, I've alluded to a couple of times is, um, when I started this job, you know, Rock Harbor, I, I, we don't, we're not 
a denominational church, so we don't ordain our pastors, but we give a certificate saying, you know, signed by the elders and everybody that this is a pastor at our campus. And mine said teaching pastor on it. And I, I looked at it when I remember when Todd handed it to me, I looked at it and I thought, hmm, I know what that first word means, that, that teaching word. I don't know what that second word means so much, which is interesting. I mean, I, I got thoughts, but so I went on this trail of like, what does it mean to be a pastor? Hmm. And one of the biggest things I realized is um, it's different than being a professor. So um, now you can be a professor who is a pastor um, and you can be a pastor who has kind of professorial or academic tendencies. But that word pastor for, means that I have to have a connection with the people I'm speaking with, not just a sort of a stage presence. And so that took me on this whole path of like, well, I mean, I think what I need to do is open up 10 hours of my week every week or, you know, it's, it's that numbers in flux, but just to, to hang out with people in the community um, for a variety of reasons. One is because I, just to be a human being. <laughs> and if I'm a pastor and leader at this church, they need to have access to me as a human being and not just as a face on the stage. Um, or, a vo or a voice, you know, through the internet. Um, but two, it was, because uh, when I'm preaching, I'm talking to them and, and, and this word is making its way into their lives. And so I probably ought to know their lives because if I know their lives, it may even affect the way I share it. And well, sure enough, I mean, every week I'm, I'm standing up there instead of looking at this kind of audience, you know, anonymous audience, I'm looking at my friends and my family and saying, oh, I, I know where you're at. And sometimes it tempers what I'm going to say. And sometimes it it sharpens what I'm going to say. And some, you know, sometimes it brings tears to my eyes when I'm saying it because I know the person. Um, and so that's been a, a big part of the process that's helped me find my voice a little bit more. Uh, not, not just a conveyor of information, but a, a shepherd, yeah. you know, a flock. And, and then beyond that, o over the last couple of years, I think I've really, that was an initiator. And then that's led me into starting to ask questions about, okay, well, what are your hopes and aspirations for them? If, if you started, you, you know them and you love them and you want to see them flourish in the way that God has designed them to flourish, what are your hopes and where would you lead them? And that's where I started to find my voice of like, oh, I think, um, I think there's a unique opportunity for this church at this time. Mm. Maybe the church at, the, at this time, but this church at this time. And this is where maybe another podcast for another day, but, but this moment that we find ourselves in for me is so crucial where so many are abandoning the ship of the old ways of doing church. And the answer for a lot is to ride the old ways down to the bottom <laughs> as the ship is sinking. And I'm just sitting here thinking, no, I think there's a third way. Mm. I don't think we have to abandon it. I don't think we have to stick to it. Like it's, it's the gospel. I think we need to, to reform, you know, mm. And, and, and do things a little bit differently. Take serious some stuff that we've maybe overlooked. Well, we de it, um, sounds like we are, it sounds like we are on the precipice of another podcast yes, for that. So, so we'll have to I'll, do that. We'll stop there. We'll pause that there. <laughs> but um, because that is, I, I, think you're, I think you're right. There's a lot of, um, I mean, the deconstructionist movement. Yeah. Um, and just the way the church has been. And th something has, it doesn't fit. The categories are, are no longer fitting. Right. In a lot of ways, right. um, even the ties to politics and the yep. ties to the culture war, yep. like those those categories are, if they're not gone, they're le they're yep. they're almost gone. They're on the way out. And um, so anyway, okay. So that's that's yeah. the voice that I'm finding. Okay, is that? that well, that's <laughs> <laughs> and it's been recent. It's been recent to answer your question. All right. Well, that's okay. So let's let's transition. Let's geek out a little bit. Yeah, please. In Luke, because you guys spent what was it? 
was it 34, 36 weeks? I think it was 36 weeks. 36 yeah. weeks yeah. in Luke. Which is long for us. Rock Harbor was for a while notorious for these kind of six week mini, mini series. And now since I've been here, not, I mean, maybe it's my fault because it's been all under my watch, but we did like nine months in Acts. We did nine months in Romans. We did, you know, nine months in Luke and. That's why we're in a topical series right now because our our people got tired of these these well, long book studies. I but. actually I was interested because um, you were in Luke, yeah, and now you're in a series on what does it mean to be a citizen, a lot yeah. of social justice stuff. Yeah, did the Luke series plant seeds? Oh, of for that? sure, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things that I get to do as as teaching pastor here too is dream about uh, um, sermon series, and so again, it's a team process. I bring the sermon series to the team. Um, and a lot of times I'll bring multiple proposals of, hey, here are three or four options. Let's talk through it. And then once we land on one, we refine it as a team. But yeah, we, we were in the middle of Luke and um, it was one of those it was one of those moments where it's like, man, I, I, I followed Jesus around for a while and watch what he did 2000 years ago. And I just I wonder what he'd do today. And I want whatever whatever that thing is, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and, and the news is, of course, every week we're preaching on, on the Gospel of Luke. And so we're telling a story of something that happened 2,000 years ago. And then simultaneously there's a shooting at a nightclub in Florida. And then it's just like, you know. And, and you can't read Luke and not see the poor. Yeah. Yeah. That Jesus is so oh, yeah. concerned about the poor. Yeah. And Mary, when she hears about that she's going to bear the Messiah, that the... The, the mighty will be brought low yeah. and the low will yeah. be brought up. And I mean, you can't get away from it yeah. in Luke. It's a thesis statement. I mean, Luke 4, he walks in and says, this is what I'm about. Yeah. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do these things. And, you know, so the social justice component is massive at the heart of the gospel. And then you have like, you have race relations, you know, right in, right in the text there. And then, you, you know, as Luke's, Luke's got, Luke's, he's such a brilliant writer that he's got all these little snapshots, these vignettes of characters that stand out and some and, and almost all of the characters that he highlights don't belong in the traditional order, you know, whether it's because of their socioeconomic status or their gender or their or their ethnicity and, and Luke just, just shines the light on them. As we're talking about them, all of this stuff is happening in the world and I'm just thinking, you know, there's that, that famous John Wimber story where he walks out, I don't remember all the details, but he walks out of church having heard this great sermon and he says, great, when do we get to do this stuff? And that's kind of how I felt. Mm -hmm. It was like, we just talked about it, but now we got to do this stuff. Man, so, so, oh gosh, I can't, you just think like, it is so contemporary. Yeah. I mean, even Luke, I, we were doing something in Acts, but Luke, like, it's amazing. He wrote this 2000 years ago, but mm -hmm. you could superimpose this. Oh yeah. You could superimpose the story of the rich man and Lazarus right on to the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's crazy. Yeah. I love it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, yeah. so tell me, so how did you decide, like, how did you decide on how long it was going to take? Like oh, what man. was, yeah. how did that, how did that happen? So I read the whole gospel uh, with a, with a, I, I got a copy of the Bible. <laughs> I got, you know, we have these, these pew copies that are sort of paper copies and I got one of those out so that I could just mark it up, you know, without, without being too anxious about, the, the markings. And I just went through and basically said, I, yeah, I know it's got chapter headings. I know that the, the editors have done a nice job of breaking up what they think the, the br divisions are, but I'm going to do it for myself. And so I went through and I basically bracketed every place I thought there was a, a pericope, a you know, division in the text and, and just went through the whole thing top to bottom. And then I just 
you know, took a spreadsheet out, typed them all out. So versus one to so-and-so, you know, of, of every text and, and then just counted. And I was like, okay, 92. I've identified, you know, the way I would read it, I've identified 92 unique passages. And then I thought, well, we're never going to be able to do a 92 week series. So, um, okay, now it's time to, it's time to do the, the painful work of, of cutting. So I basically went through and just started saying, what are the, what are the must haves? Like I, like if we miss this, it's going to be devastating. And so I went through and I started starring the must-haves. And I think I got to a list of about 50 passages. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all must-haves. That sounds terrible, but you know what I mean. No, I know what you're saying. I mean, you, you, I mean unless you're going to go verse by verse yeah. by verse, like Chuck Smith Sunday night, you know, right. whatever at Calvary Chapel. Like unless you're going to do that, you have to make some decisions yeah. about what do you focus on. Yep. Even if you have a passage that's 25 verses long, yeah. you might just hit... 10 of them. Yep. So even if it's read out loud in church, you're not going to be able to do everything. You have to make some decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I made some decisions, cut it down to about 50. And I was still thinking 50s. That's a full year of Sundays. And of course, you've got your Easter's and your Christmases and stuff that are not probably going to fit into the box. And then uh, from there, it was okay. I think we need to get this down even more. Probably about nine months uh, is about is about the most I can push this. So I was looking at, you know, 30 30 to 36. And uh, so, yeah, then I just started looking for overlaps. You know, mm-hmm. this one talks about money and this one talks about money. So if I had to pick which one, which one of those we're going to talk about, you know, you know, look for some topical over some topical redundancies and um, just kind of weeded it down to about, you know, 30. And that was, a, a you know, a lot of that was me in a room by myself. But then once it got to the final phases, I would take it to the team and say, you know, what do you guys think? Is there something missing? And somebody'd say, "Oh, you can't skip that story." You know, and okay, oh, well, okay. You know, then what else are we going to cut? <laughs> That's right. You know, That's right. and that was that was sort of the process. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, so what surprised you in Luke? Oh man, I mean, I think exactly what you've called out is um, is just this this thesis statement of the. You know, he exalts the humble and brings mm. and brings low the proud. It, this like it's it's the point of the gospel. And I mm. think I think both from a, a socioeconomic and political point of view, as you've already identified, the poor are everywhere in here. And Jesus heart, it, it's 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 all he wants. He just wants to be with them. He just wants to be with them. And it, it's this fascinating this vignette of here we have a guy that's born into a working class kind of artisan family. So you know, lower middle class that that makes it his aspiration in an empire where your aspiration is to rise as high as possible, makes it his aspiration to stoop as low as he possibly can. So he's born low and he descends lower. And and, and you just think and then that becomes the model, because, you know, for me, one of the framing texts in Luke is it's in the other Gospels as well is when he picks up a child and says, this is what you're supposed to be like. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such of the or the kingdom of God in Luke belongs to such as these. And you just think. What does he mean? Well, he means somebody who comes with nothing to bring to the table, somebody who comes lowly and humble. And you realize that that is both a statement on on the political and socioeconomic stuff that's happening at the time. But it's also an extremely spiritual statement. Uh, In other words, if you come to the place where you recognize that all you have is need, you are now prepared to receive the gospel. If you think you bring something to the table, uh, you have no place at the table, mm. you know, which is um, I think that was probably the thing that, that struck me over and over again is this is a gospel for the needy. Mm. It's good news for the poor, as he says in Luke 4. Wow. So that's, that's really cool. What was your favorite message 
in those 36? Oh, man. If you could pick one. I know it's, you know, there's all, all of them are great, yeah. but no. did you have one that, does, does one stand out? Like, did God meet you in one in a particular yeah. way, or was there one that you just felt like, man, that was awesome? There was there was one that stands out. I mean, I mentioned the, the little child one, and that one, that one always sticks out to me, but the one that stands out most uh, for me was the Emmaus Road story. Luke 24. Um, it's always been this story that has captivated my imagination. And it, it's just got this like, it's funny because the gospel of Luke is structured in such a way as you know that, that it, it starts out in the Galilee. And Luke really doesn't have all these back and forth journeys. He's got the Galilee and then he's right. got Jerusalem. Because his thing is traveling to Jerusalem. Yep. Getting to Jerusalem is the story. Yep. Right. And so up until, you know, Luke 9, I think you've got this sort of it's not lighthearted, but it's not super heavy. You've got this sort of ascent that, that culminates with um, the Mount of Transfiguration. And then from there, it just gets heavy. It gets heavier and heavier, and you can feel the weight on Jesus. It, it, it just, he's, he's beginning to, he's talking over and over again about his death. He's, he's saying things that he hasn't yet said in ways that are heavy and pointed. And there are these woes that are coming out and, you know, um, and there's this huge weight that culminates in the cross and, and then the, this resurrection moment. But then the road to Emmaus, it's like it just takes on this like magical, light, playful, um, colorful, like vivid, vivid story. And it's always captivated my imagination since I was a kid. And so I decided with this one, I was like, I, I don't know how to tell this text without ruining it. If, if, I, if, I, if I make it sort of an expository, exegetical sermon. So I decided to write it like a narrative, and I rewrote the whole thing as a narrative. And basically, I took some some interpretive liberties with deciding who the second you know second companion on the road right. was, you know, um, and I identified it, you know, using some scholarship. I, I basically landed on um, Cleopas as as Alpheus, as James' okay. father, and the, his companion then being his wife Mary, okay. um, who would have been one of the ones at the tomb, you know, mm -hmm. and. And basically wrote a backstory for them. Uh, that how did they come to meet Jesus? And and wrote the whole backstory leading up to the conversation on the road, and then just played out the conversation on the road as what would Jesus have been saying to them when it says he led them through the text. Oh my gosh! And so I just basically played out, you know, how he showed them, uh, told told them the story of Adam, and told them the story of Moses, and 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 uh, and told them the story of Abraham and and Isaac and, and, you know, basically pointing all of them to himself and tried to like, you know, tells them the story. Jonah of, and Isaiah. Yeah. And, uh, and Job, the innocent sufferer, you know, and, and, and basically I, so I, I kind of wrote that narrative and then landed the whole thing when they arrive at their destination, you know, Emmaus with, you know, this dinner in which um, they, they still have no idea who he is. Um, but there's throughout the whole narrative, there's this tickling in their imagination, something that their like hearts were burning. Their hearts them. are burning, and, it, and I tried to I tried to center it all around his eyes. Every time they saw his eyes, mm -hmm. there, you know, there was there was a, a, a hint of reminder. And then when he breaks the bread, they look up, and you know, and there's just this moment, and just ended the whole story with you know this the line for me that that has just been so captivating for me in my journey uh, was um, the moral of the story is um, at the center of their story was a king with enough. Um, uh, love to die and enough power to rise, drawing them to himself. So it's this idea that that their whole lives, all of the broken pieces of their lives, they found suddenly oriented around this hmm. king who had made sense of all of it, you know, who had made sense of the thousands of years of history and made sense of every detail and every pain and had drawn them all up into himself. And um, I was, I mean, 
I read the thing as a narrative, like as a story from a stool. So I wrote it out in manuscript form, read it like a story, and I, I mean, I preached it four times, and I think I wept every. I don't think I could get through it. So it was, I, I felt like I felt like it was just for me, and there were 700 people in the room who weren't even there. Oh my gosh, you're pumping yeah. me up, Josh. That oh. is awesome, and that is available on the Rock Harbor website, is it? It not? is, yeah. And if I mean. No pressure, but if anybody wants a copy of, I'm happy to email the the manuscript. Yeah, well, definitely the link to that will be in the show notes, right. and um, and that is um, I'm going straight from here, and I'm going to listen because yeah. that is fantastic. Oh, cool. oh, so good, so good. That is such a great story. Yeah. And um, well, Josh, thanks so much for oh, making yeah. time yeah. for this, for what you're doing here at Rock Harbor, um, for the leadership you're giving to the teaching team, to the work you're doing in the kingdom. Um, that you're wrestling with the text yeah. and you're letting the text in and not only changing your life, but changing a church, a culture of a church. Like that is, I can't think of any other good thing that a teaching pastor can do, but to bring the riches out yeah, I love it. to the rest. So thanks so much for oh, making thanks, time. Thanks, Craig. This is amazing. I appreciate it. Awesome. All right. If you'd like to listen to some of Josh's teaching, you can go to Rock Harbor. Dot org, or better yet, costamesa.rockharbor.org. I recommend his Luke series, particularly the Road to Emmaus episode that we were discussing at the very end. It's fantastic teaching and a little bit out of the box. And so if some of you are thinking about you might want to try something new, it is an interesting way of thinking about working a passage through on a Sunday morning. If you'd like any of the links to anything that we discussed in the episode, they will be in the show notes, particularly a link to Vanguard University, the book he mentioned, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb by Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel, as well as the book that I mentioned, How to Think Theologically by Stone and Duke. Uh, if you'd like to do us a favor here at the at the Teaching Pastor, there's a couple things. One, uh, share the podcast with someone that you know, someone who might be looking at trying to uh, sharpen their tools as a teaching pastor, or you could subscribe to the Teaching Pastor on iTunes or on Podbean, or you could visit our Patreon page. Anyhow, thanks for listening. Love what you're doing. Keep it up, and we will catch you on the next episode of the Teaching Pastor Podcast. Fades away. I want to hear the good Lord say, well.